Um, have you ever heard anyone make this statement? I could never believe in a God who dot dot dot. You've heard people make those statements? What kind of things do they usually put in the dot dot dot? I could never believe in a God who who lets people starve. Yeah, what else? Yeah, like a child dies. I was like, I could never believe in a God who let that happen. What else? Yeah, somebody gets cancer or you get cancer and you're like, I could never serve a God who dot, dot, dot. People, especially millennials and Gen Z, want to serve a God who is good, not just great. Um, I think sometimes uh, some of my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation, they were like, it's enough that God is great. We don't have to understand everything sometimes through some of these hard things. But I feel like especially in the younger generations, there's this real drive that I'm not going to serve God. I don't care if he's real, if he's not good. And some of that, I think, is probably healthy, and some of that can be unhealthy. We live in a pluralistic society, which means there's lots of options. And so they're like, if this isn't a God who's going to act in a way that I think is good, I'll just go and pick a different one. If the God you were born with rubs you the wrong way, you have other options. One of the stories of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, that I often hear people toss around as a reason for rejecting them, rejecting him, is the story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And many times I've had friends tell me this, bring this up. They're like, I could never worship a God who told some guy to kill his son. I could never worship that kind of God. I see it online sometimes. And let's be honest. If I told you, hey, are you interested in serving a God who asked you to kill children? That's not a God you would sign up for, right? That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound like a God we want to be a part of such a God would not be loving or kind and such a God would not be worthy of being followed right but the story of Abraham offering Isaac isn't as simple as our message board friends sometimes want to make it over the last few weeks we've been exploring pictures of God in the Old Testament how God's portrayed in the Old Testament and we've been wrestling with some of these ideas that were like some of these pictures of God in the Old Testament don't really look real nice they don't really look real warm and fuzzy inviting like i read a story of jesus in the new testament and i'm like yes i love jesus and then i read a story of god in the old testament and i'm like what is this like this is scary this is seems wrong but remember we've been talking about how all these pictures in the old testament jesus says that he's the clearest revelation the clearest picture of what god looks like and so we're going to jump into the story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac, and we're going to talk about what's going on in this passage. We're going to talk about how God is still good despite this passage, and how all this is a picture of Jesus. In Genesis 22, verse 1, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. And then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. Then we're going to come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. 
As the two of them went up together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they had reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there. He arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand. And he took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything for him. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram. He sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Yahweh will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now, that's a pretty messed up story. Like, if God appeared to me, I love my dog to an obsessive amount. If God appeared to me and he said, kill Hagrid, your beloved dog, I'd be like, no, I'm going to go find another God. Like, this is crazy. And if you read this passage, you're like, is this April Fool's? Like, it's like a cruel April Fool's prank that God pulls on Abraham. Right? That's what it reads like. He's like, you're going to go up and kill your son. And then right as you're about to do it, like, no, April Fool's, kill this ram instead. If we set aside our religious familiarity with this story for a minute, this is a messed up story. And we have to understand that the people outside of church who hear this story are not getting all our religious familiarity with it. Like, oh, it's okay. It turns out okay. They're reading it, and there's a lot of shock and horror and disgust at this story. Now, if we're going to understand this story, we need to go back and look at how it starts. What's the first thing it says? Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Notice how the story starts. Some time later. This is a continuation of something that happened before this. This isn't just like in the middle of uh, nothing. Something happened before this. So what happened in the previous chapter? In the previous chapter, Abraham sent his other son, his firstborn son, out into the, into the desert to die. He took his other son and he said, I don't care about you. I don't want you. And he took his concubine and his first son and sent them out in the wilderness to die. Now, to understand what's going on here, you need to know that God had promised Abraham and his wife Sarah a son who would father children, who would grow into a great nation. And God promised this nation would be a nation through which God would restore his relationship with mankind. But Abraham and Sarah were old and they were like, God hasn't followed through. And it doesn't look like he's ever going to follow through. They didn't believe that God would do what he said. He was taking so long, they began to fear. And they began to scramble to make the miracle happen for themselves. So Sarah took an Egyptian slave, took her into her husband and said, Hey, get her pregnant. That's how we'll have a kid. She commanded her slave to sleep with her husband Abraham. This isn't something the slave got to pick. It was just forced on her to bear his child. And she had a son named Ishmael. And God promised to bless Ishmael because he came from Abraham. But eventually, God miraculously gave Sarah a son. The promise actually happened. And immediately, Sarah was jealous of Ishmael. She's like, this is the child of promise. This is the child that I tried to make things happen. And now he's just in the way. 
she immediately regretted the son of her scheming, and so she began to badger Abraham to send him and his mother away. So he placed the mother and the son on a donkey. He gave them some food and one water bottle, and it says in the previous chapter, he sent them into the desert. Now, if you send someone into the desert with a young child with one bottle of water, that's a death sentence. You're not going to be around when they die. You don't have to bloody your hands with it, but you've sent them out to die. And so that's what's happening before this story. Abraham says, this is the son I care about. This is the son I can do without. I'm going to just dispose of him and send him out into the desert to die. He has no respect or care or love for his son. And so he sends one out to die. Now, if you read the previous chapter, when the water was gone, the mother was grieving. And she says, I can't watch my son's be uh, uh, die of dehydration so she puts him in a bush and she goes over to this other bush nearby where she can die without seeing him and god miraculously shows up and rescues them it's a beautiful story of how god saves even the the side characters in the story not just the main characters and he saves um um hagar and ishmael but abraham doesn't know that abraham's back in camp thinking I killed my concubine and my son, but I have my son that matters. And so in verse 2, what does it say? After this, God tested him. He said, you don't love your son? You send sons out to die like they don't matter? Is that really how you feel about human life? And so what does he say in verse 2? He says, take your son, your only son. He has two sons. But in Abraham's mind, his other son's dead because he sent him out to the desert to die. Whom you love, the only son that you actually love, take him up and sacrifice him. He's saying, I know you sent your other son to die. I know you didn't love your other son. You sacrificed Ishmael when it was convenient. Will you sacrifice Isaac when it's commanded? And so... This is why verse 1 tells us this was a test. We often sacrifice the things we don't love to God, but rarely do we sacrifice the things we truly love. Often a test reveals we have many things we love more than God. Often a test reveals something about ourselves that we don't want to now, the Old Testament is filled with testing narratives, and the word test is probably not a good translation into English, because immediately when I say test, what do you think of? Scantron, yeah. I think of filling in bubbles, like ACT, SAT, endless tests in school, you know. And that's not really a good, uh, a good translation, because as modern Westerners, we think of memor memorizing the right facts, we think of getting A's or F's, passing or failing. Um, I like to think of these biblical tests as spiritual strength training. It's not that God's like, man, pop quiz. We're going to see if you get an A or an F. It's more like God wants to build your spiritual muscles. Darby has been going to the gym for the last few weeks. And uh, on one of her first days, she lifted weights. I think we have a video here. Here's her trainer, Scotty. That's him lifting 345 pounds. And here's her lifting 65 pounds. Now, that's still a good thing, right? 
but it was her first time ever deadlifting, right? <laughs> no, it doesn't. But you know what she told me? She's been going a few weeks now. You're already lifting more weight. She's already, after just a few weeks, now lifting more weight because she kept going over weeks and weeks. She's steadily seen her strength increase. Now, when Scotty asked you to lift that, he didn't mock you. He didn't make fun of you. He wasn't like, fail because you didn't lift 345 pounds. He asked you to lift what you could so that you would have the strength to soon lift even more than you could today. That's the exact same reason that God tests us. He's steadily building our spiritual strength, not so he can be like, you fail, you loser, you should have been able to lift 300 pounds. No, he wants to build our strength so we have a greater capacity to trust him in the future. There's no instant change when you go to the gym, but faithfulness over time leads to increased strength. It's the same thing in our lives. We would love to just be able to like go up to the spiritual microwave and be like 30 seconds, extra faith, and boom, it's done, you know, like popcorn. But that's not how it works. It's faithfulness, doing the right thing over and over again over a long period of time that builds our spiritual muscles. Tests are these moments that God stretches us so that we have a greater capacity for trusting him in the future. Now, each of these testing motifs throughout scripture involve people seeing something that looks good in their eyes, something that they think, this is the way I need to go forward, and God saying no, or not yet, or that's not the way to do it. Leading those people to wrestle with why a good God who claims to be good would ask them to do something or withhold something that they see as good. Those who remain faithful over time, they'll see their spiritual strength increase. And you can look all through scripture and see stories like this. In Adam and Eve, Eve saw that the fruit was good, and God said, don't eat that fruit even though it looks good. Why would a good God keep them from a fruit that looks good? The Israelites in the wilderness, they were hungry and thirsty. Staying alive is a good thing. And God says, uh, you're going to wait. I will provide food and water. And then Jesus in the garden heading to a cross, dying for the sins of the world can't be good. Someone who's perfect and blameless taking on the sins of the world can't be good. And yet what does he say? Not my will, but yours. The Bible's full of testing narratives in your life. And my life are full of testing moments, not because God is a cruel teacher, not because he's like, pop quiz, I want to see how many kids I can fail, because he wants to build our capacity to trust. And then, of course, there is my test and your test, the thing that you are facing right now, and you think, this is not good. Why is this in my life? I hate this. This is death. Why don't you give me this good thing that I want, God, because you and I are in a test. And if you're not in a test today, you're probably coming up on one. And if you're not coming up on one, you probably just got out of one. There's one around the corner again, because life is full of tests that are designed to build our capacity to trust. Why does a good God not give me what I want? Why doesn't he take me on a path around this thing that's so painful and hard? How do we respond when the thing that God calls death looks like everything we need and want? And how do we respond when the thing God calls life looks like it's going to hurt us too much if we walk towards it? Do we trust that God is good even when we're walking up a mountain to an altar built to sacrifice ourselves and our deepest held dreams? The most important spiritual moments in your life are not when your prayers are answered. Those are great moments. 
I love when my prayers are answered, and I'm like, somebody up there heard me. This thing, like, this isn't fake. This is real. Like, something, something happened. That's a great moment. But the most critical spiritual moment in your life is when you don't get what you want. It's when you don't see your prayers answered. Because in those moments, our spiritual maturity is revealed. We see ourselves as we really are. We know how little we truly trust the goodness of God, how little we truly love and believe that he is good. Now, the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac is a story we're meant to wrestle with. The Hebrew authors were really intentional. They wrote the Old Testament as meditation scripture, and that means they want you to come to stories and wrestle with the reality of who God is and what he's asking. So, first of all, when you come to the story and you feel uncomfortable, that's by design. That's not an accident. That's by design. They want you to wrestle with this story. But here's some reasons why the story doesn't make me lose hope in the goodness of God. Number one, this is the only place in the entire collection of biblical stories where we see God ever ask for a human sacrifice. This is not a habit. This is not something he ever does again. This is a special, unique moment. So this is not something where God's like, I need human sacrifices every 1,000 years or something. No. This is a one-time, very special encounter. He has a very special relationship with Abraham. He does things to Abraham and with Abraham that he does with no one else. Number two. God was forcing Abraham to wrestle with the reality of sending Ishmael to die. And so this previous story, as I talked about before, I think is critical to understanding this one. Abraham says, the only son that matters to me is the son of promise. And God is saying, people matter. Not just the people that get you what you want. Everyone should matter to you, Abraham. Not just the child of promise, but also your other child, too. And then three... I think that this story has less to do with Abraham and Isaac and more to do with God the Father and God the Son. Because ultimately, God provides his own sacrifice in place of the Son. Just like in this story, he provided a ram in place of the Son. In the story of Jesus, he provides his Son in place of us. Now, it's this last statement that I want to spend some more of our time on. Now, do you know what stands on Mount Moriah? where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. Do you know what stands on Mount Moriah today? Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built on Mount Moriah. Do you know where Jesus was crucified? Outside the gates of Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. In the very place where God provided a ram in place of Isaac, God provided a son in place of us. On the very same mountain. And at the end of the Abraham story, what does it say? It says, Yahweh will provide. On the mountain, Yahweh will provide. And what did he provide? He provided a sacrifice for you and me. So this story is about more than just what's happening to them. They were real people who went through this real experience. But at the same time, they were broadcasting a bigger story to the entire world world 
A son was offered on the altar at Mount Moriah, but it wasn't Isaac. He was a descendant of Isaac, but his name was Jesus. Like the ram caught in the thorns, his head would be crowned with thorns. Like Isaac, he would carry the wood of his own execution on his back. And like Isaac, he would walk off the mountain of death alive. Now, this story seems barbaric. And cruel God demanding a parent sacrifice their child, the child that they waited for and prayed for and hoped for. But this story is not about Isaac. It is always about Jesus. Abraham's family, as part of their covenant relationship with Yahweh, had a special role to be introducing Yahweh and his plan to the world. And sometimes they spoke it, and sometimes they had to live it. And this is part of their partnership with God to live out this story he wants to tell of restoring the relationship between God and man. Sometimes people listen to what we say we believe, but much more often they remember how we made them feel, they watch how we live, and that reveals what we believe. People forget what you say, they remember what you do. And there would be people that Abraham would say, hey, I have this partnership with Yahweh, the one true God, and through me he's going to reveal himself to the world. And they would be like, okay, whatever. But then they hear a story like this, and it resonates with them, and they wrestle with it, and they think about it, and it stays with them. And now maybe 4,000 years later from this story, we're still thinking about this moment and wrestling with it and talking about it. The way we wrestle with God when we're climbing a hill to give away the thing most precious to us speaks louder than the most amplified televised sermon in some football arena. Now I'm grateful for when people stand up and have a huge platform to talk about Jesus. But sometimes the way you walk through your test speaks louder and more clearly to the people in your life and family and community than someone on a giant screen somewhere. How you act when you don't get what you want reveals the true level of your faith, both to yourself, but also to a desperate world looking for hope all around you. Those are the moments that our faith matters most. Now, that isn't to make you feel guilty when you respond badly to a test, because we all have. We've all had a test and we're like, I blew that, like, I did not trust God, I did not think he was good, I gave up all hope. But I hope it does give you some perspective that when you come to a test, when you come to a moment where God asks you to give up something you don't want to, when God asks you to go without something that you feel like you absolutely have to have to survive and thrive, it's not because he's bad. It's not because he hates you. It's because he wants to build your trust. He wants to use you to amplify his name to a hurting and hungry world. I want to end today by talking about what to do if you currently feel like you're in the middle of a test. First, a quick reminder. Not everything challenging in your life is a test from God. I know sometimes there's some people who want to spiritualize everything, and they're like, well, I never ever bought new tires, and I've been riding on them for six years, and I got a flat tire. God's testing me. <laughs> you needed to buy new tires, you know? Like, have you guys seen that meme uh, where the kid's putting a boot on his own head? He's like, I'm under oppression. And he's putting the own boot on his head. This is us a lot of times. This is me a lot of times. I'm like, it's so hard. Of course, I didn't do anything to prepare for this, and this is just a consequence of me not preparing, but it's God's fault. Don't blame God for testing you when you're simply dealing with the results of your own bad decisions. 
But there are moments in life when God keeps us from what we want most. Moments where he asks us to put our dreams, our visions for how life was going to go on the altar. And these are critical moments where we have to decide what we're going to do when God asks for everything. If you're in that kind of test, first, I suggest that you set aside any idea that God is anything but good. If you look at every time that the Satan, the devil, shows up in Scripture, uh, he always tries to do the same thing, to get people to believe that God is not good, that he hates humans, that he hates them, that he's not for them, that God has anything but good designs. Don't give in to the idea that God is anything but good. Second, understand that often our dreams must die for God to resurrect better ones. My dreams are often selfish. They're often small. And many times my dream about how things should go has to die so God can resurrect something better, something that's more selfless, something that's much more for others and less for myself. In Hebrews 11:9, Abraham, it says, reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. He thought he was taking them to die, but he got him back alive. Sometimes, with our dreams, they have to look like they die before God can resurrect something better and different. Every time I've dreamed about the future, about something that I wanted— something that I longed for and prayed for, it never turned out like I thought. It's always better, but it's always different. It's not always like I wanted, but I found uh, joy in the dreams, even when they change and are resurrected in a different way. Third, recognize that the goal of a test is to grow your spiritual muscles, to make you live and love more like Jesus. Jesus wants to be with us. He wants us to become like him. And he wants us to do what he did. And, you know, Darby looks at her coach lifting 345 pounds, and she wants to be able to do that. But that's not something where she does by trying more. Can you imagine her going in there, I'm going to try really hard. That's how most of us do our spirituality, right? I'm going to try harder not to sin. I'm going to try harder to do these things that I should be doing, right? It's not by trying, it's by training, by modeling our lives on Jesus, by faithfully doing things day after day, when sometimes it doesn't look like it's doing anything, when sometimes it looks like there's better options, we just keep faithfully doing what's right, and over time we become like Jesus. A.W. Tozer said, When I understand that everything that happens to me is designed to make me more Christ-like, it can resolve a great deal of my anxiety. The moments that seem most painful and difficult in your life are not designed to break you, they're designed to form you and make you more like Jesus. This doesn't mean that there isn't evil in our lives. This doesn't mean that evil isn't happening to us. It just means we believe that Yahweh is so good, that Jesus is so good, he can take what is meant for evil and bring good out of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for building our capacity for faith. God, sometimes I get really cocky, and I think, I've got some pretty strong faith. And then we go through something like a two-year pandemic. I do something like start a church, and I'm reminded my faith is so small.
my visions and dreams, when I don't get what I want, when things don't look the way that I thought they should or would, many times I'm like, well, what was the point? God, forgive me for so often having a small faith. Build our capacity. Help us as we walk through tests to always remember that you are good and your goal is to make us like Jesus, people of peace and agents of love. God, for anyone going through a test right now, where they, they're like, I need this. This is what I need for life to be good, to be full, for it to be abundant. And you keep saying, no, you don't give it to me. And I don't understand why a good God would keep that away. Or, or maybe you brought something, you've allowed something into their life. And they're saying, how could God be good if he let this happen? If he let me face this, if he let me walk through this. God, I pray that you will remind them in the midst of this, that you are good, that you are with them.